Well, I want to welcome all of you who are watching online, those of you who are watching by television, those of you who are part of our churches all over the city of Atlanta and our strategic partners all over the country, and for those of you who are actually in the room. Yeah, there's five of you are happy to be here. Hey, um, you probably are familiar with the name Anne Rice. Um, Anne Rice has, uh, she's written about 30-something books. She's published about over 90 million books. She's... Um, <clears throat> one of the most successful authors in in modern day history. Um, She writes, or wrote primarily uh, metaphysical gothic fiction. It's what it's called, primarily about vampires. Uh, Interview with a Vampire, you may have seen that movie. That's from one of her earliest books in the 70s. The Vampire Chronicles, you've probably read all of those. I don't know, I wanna ask you to raise your hand. Um, Anne was uh, actually raised in the church and when she was 18 years old, um, she, in, in her own terms, she says she left the church violently. I think it was violently and completely, or violently and totally. Left the church at 18, went on to pursue her um, literary career, was very, very successful. She's been everywhere in the world, knows everybody, connected with the most, uh, just, she sort of been there and done that, met people you'll never meet, places you'll never visit. And again, she sold over 90 million books, primarily fiction. Um, she's had some bumps along the way, some tragedy in her life, like most people. And then, in her late 50s, in 1998 or 1999, Anne came back to her roots, came back to her faith, and came back to the church after being away as an atheist for all those years. Um, when she came back, she decided to commit her writing skills to the Lord, as she says, and she began to write a trilogy on the life of Jesus, and she began as, uh, writing a book about when Jesus was a child. In fact, I read this book. This is her first Christian publication, Christ Our Lord Out of Egypt, and this is a fiction book about all the things that you wondered about Jesus when he was a teenager, when he was nine, and did he have brothers, and did he do miracles for fun, and just all those kinds of things. She did. She wrote a, a fiction book about Jesus. It's absolutely fascinating. I couldn't put it down. Again, it's fiction, and she says it's fiction. But what was most interesting to me is at the end of this book, and I remember exactly where I was, at the end of the book, there's an author's note. And in the author's note, Anne Rice, who has, you know, been everywhere, met everybody, you know, very wealthy, you know, on and on it goes. She had movies made of her, several movies made of her books. Anne explains how she came back to faith, how she re-embraced Jesus. And here's how it happened. I'll give you her testimony since I couldn't get her to come. I did email her. I'm waiting to hear back. I'm sure any day now. But here's her story. Here's her story as it, as it my, my version of her story is at the end of this book. Here's how it happened. Um, she's to some extent a historian. I mean, she researches like crazy. And she's always been fascinated with the, the history of Judaism, primarily because Judaism is an ancient culture and Judaism is an ancient religion that survived because there have been many, many ancient religions that never survived antiquity. And so she thought, always thought it was curious, why the Jews? And so she began to research um, Judaism for, for whatever reason, and she discovered there was a piece of Jewish history she didn't know anything about. In fact, you don't know anything about it either because we don't study this in school. But the um, Jews um, in like 64, 65 um, AD rebelled against the Romans. There was a four or five year war called the Jewish Wars. It culminated in Rome, the Romans, the the 10th Legion of Rome, surrounding the city of Jerusalem. All all those that were hostile to Rome were basically holed up in the um, city of Jerusalem, and they um, laid siege to the city, and what happened there is given to us really, in some cases, hour by hour detail by Josephus. It's one of the most fascinating pieces of history that you'll ever read. I read the whole thing. And so she began to study the siege of Rome and the fall, excuse me, the siege of Jerusalem, the fall of Jerusalem, and all this happened in 70 AD. And she just thought that was absolutely fascinating. And she wanted to know more about what happened in 70 AD because Rome 
Rome stormed the walls. They burned down the temple. Um, they just, they ex- ex- executed hundreds of thousands of Jews. In fact, the Romans built a scaffolding around uh, the walls and they crucified um, Jews on a scaffolding to try to scare the rest of the Jews into surrendering. It was just a horrific time in the life of, of the Jews in that time. So she was so fascinated by this, she thought, what other sources could I use to find out more about the Jewish wars? And she thought, oh, the New Testament. Because she had always been taught, as you have, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written, you know, many, 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 many years after the actual events. That's why these theories and all these miracle stories could grow up, because it takes a long, 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 long time for something that happens to turn into a miracle, because people keep adding to the story, adding to the story. So she assumed, if I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there certainly will be something in the Gospels about the siege of Jerusalem and, uh, you know, that took place in 70 AD. And so she read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It wasn't in there. She couldn't understand that. Why is there nothing in these four accounts of something that happened around this very city? How come, you know, the temple being destroyed and Jerusalem being sacked, how come there's nothing in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about that? And then she thought, oh, well, maybe it hadn't happened yet. Which means that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John were written before 70 AD, which means the eyewitnesses to these events were still alive, which means there really wasn't enough time for all these stories that we think are fables to have become fables because the eyewitnesses were still around, which means Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John might actually be historical documents of something that actually happened. Isn't that how most of you came to faith? Isn't that your story? You're sitting around one day going, ancient Judaism. Yeah, why ancient Judaism? Why haven't they all the other... Anyway, so then she discovered there were actually some really smart evangelicals, some smart, you know, Christians like we think in terms of Christians. And she began to meet them and read their books. And oh my goodness, her eyes were open to this whole level and this whole arena of scholarship that she didn't know anything about because the people she'd spent so much of her life with just kind of dissed Christianity. Like, why would you even give it a second thought? And she re-embraced her faith. Well, after that, then she wrote another book that I read called Call Out of Darkness, and this is Anne, and I'm um, saying hi to Anne, and this is her spiritual confession, and this is her story about how she came back to faith. It's her story about leaving the church and all the reasons she left and her story back. Well, anyway, I read this on my um, Kindle app on my, um, on my um, iPad because I want to give both Amazon and Apple credit in case I can get a sponsorship on my Sony television <laughs> with an Intel chip inside, I'm sure. So anyway, I'm just, just looking for sponsors is all I'm saying. Okay, so anyway, so I was so, I was so fascinated. By, so I read this, this book on, on my iPad and then I actually went and bought the book to, to support the actual publisher. And the reason I bought the paperback book is for this quote. I just wanted the book with this quote because I love this. So here's Anne Rice. She's smarter than all of us put together, okay? She's been everywhere in the world. She's richer than all of us put together. And she's come to faith basically through her intellect. And she writes a book. And in these three or four paragraphs I'm going to read you out of this book called Out of Darkness... She addresses some of the issues you've wrestled with for years, and many of you have been from Christians for, for many, many years. Here's, here's what she says. He, talking about God, knew how or why everything happened. He knew the disposition of every single soul. He wasn't going to let anything happen by accident. Nobody was going to hell by mistake. This was his world, all of this. He had complete control of it. His justice, his mercy were not our justice or our mercy. What folly to even imagine such a thing. Wow. Some of you came and are watching online just to hear that. 
because you've been so hung up over the justice of God. And Anne Rice says, how in the world could you get hung up over the justice of God? It's God's justice, not yours. She continues, I didn't have to know how he was going to save the unlettered and the unbaptized or how he would redeem the conscientious heathen who had never spoken his name. I didn't have to know how my gay friends would find their way to redemption or how my hardworking secular humanist friends could or would receive the power of a saving grace. I didn't have to know why good people suffered agony or died in pain. He knew. Wow. And it was his knowing that overwhelmed me. His knowing that became completely real to me. This is for some of you. And why should I remain apart from him just because I couldn't grasp all of this? He could grasp it. Now that is profound. I mean, in those few paragraphs, she just tackled and just addressed some of the primary issues, some of the primary folk, uh, struggles that many of us have had for years. And you know what her answer is? It's like, hey, your God's too small. Why would I remain separated from God because I can't figure God out? Anyway, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. So I just, you know, when I, honestly, when I read um, her, the, the notes at the end of, of her first um, historical, historical fiction about Jesus, I sat on my bed and when she, I read about how, you know, she came to faith, I just wept. I was just overwhelmed with all of that. And, and before we move on, I got to say this, if, if you kind of dismissed the New Testament because you had a college freshman professor who just spent about 15 minutes on one day about how the New Testament's myth and that was the end for you and it knocked out your legs out of, from underneath your faith and you walked away. You just need to know. You may need to take another look because Anne Rice is smarter than your freshman college professor, okay? <laughs> in fact, let me just say this about your freshman college professor. He or she is probably sitting in church somewhere going, I can't believe I did that to all those kids. Because something happened in his or her life and it brought them back around to take a second look. Well, time goes by, so Anne re-embraces her faith and she's kind of following the whole Christian thing for about 10 years. And then some of you know this, this is fascinating as well. In July of 2010, she quit. She just quit Christianity. She posted this on her Facebook page. She said this, today I quit being a Christian. And which I'm going, no, you can't quit. You're just, you're just getting us started. I mean, please tell me you're not going to take away all those wonderful things you wrote. I mean, it, it was so helpful. Today I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ as always, but not to being Christian or to being part of Christianity. Okay, wait, 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 wait. You're messing us up. You're, you're going to remain committed to Christ, like Jesus, but not Christianity? Or, are we allowed to do that? It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. Whew, I love Jesus. I just don't like the quarreling. I don't like the hostility. I don't like the disputatious. So you wouldn't even, even use that word. Some of you don't even know what it means. That's how smart she is, okay? <laughs> I had to practice saying it just so I didn't get up here and make a fool out of myself, okay? <laughs> and deservedly infamous group. In other words, I'm going to follow Jesus, but I don't want to be a part of whatever that is. Some of you have felt that way. Some of you aren't in church and are watching at home or watching online because somebody told you you needed to and you're like, amen. You don't even say amen and you're at home by yourself watching TV and you just said amen to your computer screen, okay? And you thought, where did that come from? And your, root, your roots kind of slipped out, didn't they? 
she, she, she's not done. For 10 years, I've tried. I love that. I failed. I'm an outsider. My conscience, what? My conscience will allow nothing else. Okay, wait, wait. So your, your conscience that's been informed by your following Jesus won't allow you to be a Christian? I, I would at this point say, I'm so confused, but we're not really all that confused by that, are we? Here's what she says. My faith in Christ is central to my life. And I love the way she says this next phrase. In fact, again, for some of you, this is why you're here. The rest of my sermon is irrelevant. This is what you're here. You're here to hear from Anne today. Listen to how she says this. My conversion from a pessimistic atheist lost in a world that, di- that I didn't understand to an optimistic believer in a universe created and sustained by a loving God is crucial to me. In other words, I have been redeemed. I am a new person. I see the world differently. And I don't want to go back to my unbelieving, atheistic, pessimistic ways. But following Christ does not mean following his followers. Christ is infinitely more important than Christianity and always will be. No matter what Christianity is, has been, or might become. And then in another interview, later after she posted these, these comments and people started you know, asking her questions, she said this. My commitment to Christ remains at the heart and center of my life. Transformation in him is radical and ongoing. That I feel now that I am called to be an outsider for, for him, to step away from the words Christian and Christianity is something that my conscience demands of me. In other words... I can't continue to follow Jesus the way I understand follow Jesus and associate with anything that has the word Christian or Christianity. Now, at some level, to some degree, as uncomfortable as that is for some of you and for others of you, it's like whatever amen is, I just want to say it really loud right now. Okay, wherever this lands with you, somewhere along the way you have felt that. Let me tell you where some of you felt it. Some of you have been in church and have been church people all your life like me, and you've got teenage kids, 18-year-old kid, 22, 23-year-old son or daughter, and they've come to you, and they're, they're kind of fed up with Christianity, and, and you're wrestling, and they bring up things, and you're, you can't argue with them. It's like, well, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. They're disputatious, you know? They're, you know you, now you've got a word you can use, and not only that, they're disputatious, okay? So you can't argue with your 24-year-old son or your 24-year-old daughter, but you don't want them to abandon everything you brought them up to believe. I mean, that's, that's how some of you are going to experience it. For others of you, life's just been disappointing. I mean, the way God was presented to you, he didn't do what he was supposed to do according to what your, you know, fourth grade Sunday school teacher said. You sang those songs, Jesus loves me, this I know, but he didn't acting like it. And then you, some Christian person or Christian book kind of gave you an answer that didn't really go along with your experience, and now you're torn. And you don't want to give up Jesus, but everything kind of Christian, it just, you know, And so what we discovered last week is this, that maybe Anne's not off base. In fact, here's what happened. When she went public with all this, she was deluged with emails, deluged with people writing letters saying, you've joined us, now you're one of us. And she said, I accidentally joined another group. I wasn't meaning to join another group. (laughs) I had no idea there were so many people out there that loved Jesus and didn't want to be Christian or associated with Christian because here's what we discovered last week. The word Christian, the word Christian can mean anything you want it to mean. 
Because the word Christian is not defined in the New Testament. In fact, it's only used three times. The word Christian, as we discovered last week, was a derogatory term that people who weren't followers of Jesus used to describe the followers of Jesus. And then over time, it stuck. And you know, when they first started calling followers of you know, the Grateful Dead deadheads, that was, you know, that was derogatory, but now they print it on t-shirts. They're proudly deadheads, so, you know, metalheads. Geeks, now, you know, geek was bad. Now they put it on the side of a van and made it a business. You know, I'm a geek. Have me over to your house to fix your television or your computer, right? So that's what happened with the term Christian in Christianity. Initially, it was a derogatory term. And then the followers of Jesus, you know, embraced it somehow and wore it as a banner. They didn't mind dying because they were Christians. But the problem with the word Christian is it can be anything you want it to be. This is why there are Christians on both sides of every political issue. There are Christians on every, both sides of every legal issue. There are Christians on both sides of every financial issue. In other words, any issue you find, there's Christians. This is why cr- nations that are predominantly Christian can go to war with each other. And you know what? This is why during the civil rights movement, you had churches, churches that were on both sides of the civil rights movement. In the name of Jesus, they're wrong. No, in the name of Jesus, they're wrong. What's up with that? We're all Christians. You'll find Christians on every side of every view. And here's why. Because you can make a Christian anything you want it to be. And when you open up the New Testament, you will find nothing to conflict with your definition of Christian. Because it's not in there. It's not defined. And that's the problem. So last week, we actually opened the New Testament, and lo and behold, we found that Jesus referred to his followers as something else. In fact, we found in the New Testament, as we will discover, continue to discover throughout this series, that the first century people who believed the message of Jesus called themselves something else. What do they call themselves? They call themselves what? Disciple. They said they were disciples. Now, this is a terrible word. It's a terrifying word. And the reason this is a problematic word is because as long as you're a Christian, you can pretty much do anything and believe anything. You really can. But if you decide to be one of these, (laughs) it is so well-defined, it is scary, and it will rock your entire world and your whole experience as a follower of Jesus. So last week we opened up the scriptures and said, okay, so what is this? And Jesus said, okay, well, let me tell you if you, don't, if you forget everything else, I don't have 10 commandments, I've just got one. In fact, he said, I'm going to give you a new one, like the Jews needed a new one. We got 611, we can't even remember them. He's going, well, I'll give you 612. And this is the most important one. And so I want to begin our Bible study portion of the message today by looking at that. Then we're going to look at something else in the New Testament as well. But before we do that, I want to say something to the men. See, men, when we get to the topic that we're talking about today, when we get to Jesus' you know, statement, hey, if you forget everything else, don't forget this. If anything is going to characterize you as somebody who's following me, don't forget this. The problem is, as soon as we hear these words, they are so passive. They seem so passive. Um, they seem so, pardon me, ladies, uh, they seem a little bit feminine. Uh, they seem like, yeah, that won't work in the marketplace. Andy, welcome to the real world. That's great for Sunday school. But once I get outside the walls of, of this building or once I turn off my television or my, shut down my computer, it doesn't work anymore. And the reason is because when we hear Jesus speak, here's what we picture. This. This ain't him. Okay? Listen, listen this, is, this is so important, all right? If you want to know what Jesus meant by what Jesus said, watch what Jesus did. If you want to understand what Jesus meant by what Jesus said, watch what Jesus did. Man, before I show you this verse and you kind of go, yeah, whatever, just remember this. This is a 30-something-year-old guy who marched into a city knowing he was going to be arrested and probably put to death. You wouldn't do that. 
This is a guy who grew up seeing rotting corpses on Roman crosses. This wasn't something he read about in a book. This was something he had smelled. As a child, no doubt his mother covered his eyes. This is what every Judean and Galilean feared. And it was not theory. He saw it. He smelt it. They feared it. And he knew that to walk into Jerusalem meant he may be one of those rotting corpses on a Roman cross. And he marched into Jerusalem anyway. And he had several occasions in which he could have recanted what he said he believed and who he claimed to be. And he would have been set free. And he didn't. And he knew there would be no, tri- there would be no jury, so to speak. There would be no recourse. He wouldn't have an attorney. He would be railroaded. And he would be put to death. Amen? He walked into the jaws of that. So before you're tempted to discount what he says is soft, you just remember who said it. If you want to understand what Jesus meant by what Jesus said, watch what Jesus did. So he gathers his guys together and he says, guys, if you forget everything else, don't forget this. By this, by this, by this, everyone will know that you're one of my disciples. How well you love one another. I thought it was what we believed. Eh, you gotta believe some things, but nobody can see what you believe. Oh, yeah, good point. I thought we were gonna be Christians. No, I want you to be my disciples. But you've defined that, it's hard. I know. And, and if you forget everything else, if you don't memorize any other verses, if you never get to the Old Testament, you just remember this. Here's how they're gonna know. Here's how they're gonna know. Here's how they're gonna know. Here's how they're going to know. Not what you believe, not even simply how you behave, but how well you love one another. 55 years after Jesus said this, approximately 55 years, John, who gave us the gospel of John, is an old man. He's seen a lot. He saw or heard about Jerusalem being sacked. He heard about the thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews who were crucified and murdered, some by their own people. He knew that temple worship would probably never ever be reinstituted because the temple had been destroyed once and for all. He's an old man and he got news years before about Peter. Peter, like Peter, was arrested, taken to Rome and according to tradition, crucified. Some say upside down. He lived through the news that the Apostle Paul had been arrested, taken to Rome, and beheaded outside the city. At this point, he's he's one of the only ones left. All the good people are gone. All the disciples are gone. They've either been murdered, dispersed, or he doesn't know where they are. And for whatever reason, God had preserved his life, and now he's an old man. And he lived through Tiberius, who crucified Jesus, you know. And he lived through Caligula and, you know, all the stuff that went along with that. He, you know, he, he, he survived even um, uh, Nero and all that went along with persecuting the Christians. Nero's long gone. And he's lived through all that. He's seen emperors come and go. He's seen the Roman Empire change. He's seen Jerusalem become a city where the Jews weren't even allowed to go into the city. He has seen all that. He's seen bloodshed like we can't even imagine. And according to, to, to tradition, he did what Jesus asked him to do. 
He took Mary, the mother of Jesus, and he protected her and he took care of her. Tradition tells us he went to Ephesus. In fact, if you visit Ephesus today, you can visit a place where supposedly John and you know, the mother of Jesus, Mary, spent time together. And yeah, you have to buy a ticket. And yeah, you have to leave a collection. But other than that, it's a pretty cool experience. you know. And people line up there for this. Here's this holy site where, G- where John and the mother of Jesus spent the last years of their life, supposedly. Who knows? But we know he survived all of that. <laughs> and then he, he, he sits down to write like a a letter or a document or a sermon to followers of Jesus that have been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. And he can write anything he wants. He's John. I mean, you know, this is a letter from John, like the John, the John. He's one of the only ones left. How valuable would that be? And here's what he says. Dear friends, there's a little Greek play on words here. It's really dear loved ones. Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Okay, John, really? You still hanging out on that idea? How's that worked out for you and the guys? They're all dead. I mean, how's the church going? Is it pretty much in hiding? I mean, that's not really a very good strategy, love one another. I mean, Jesus meant well, but okay, that was a long time ago. John, with the perspective of time, all that you've seen, all that you've heard, all that you've experienced, isn't there something else we ought to be doing to get this thing going? Everyone who loves, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. In other words, the, the, the key characteristic, the way you know somebody is really a God person, a godly person, John says, is how well they love. Whoever does not love does not know God. Oh, I don't know. I mean, my preacher, he's not a very loving guy, but I mean, he knows God. You got to hear him preach. John goes, no, I don't think so. Oh, but there's this woman I know. She leads this Bible study. I mean, nobody really likes to be around her, but she's, oh, man. John's like, no, I don't think so. Okay, but John says, no, just, just trust me. I'm John. This is still the deal. I love, listen, look at this. Whoever does not love does not know God because, tell us why, John, God is love. So if if you're like a God person, then, see, and and see, here's the thing. Somebody walked up to you and said, what's God like? You tell me about God. You know, we would start with all the O words, omniscient, omnipresent, omnisequenced, omni, I don't know, he's omni, he's everything. Then we would go from omni words to kind of Old Testament words, to powerful and mighty, and he's the king, and then there's some Hebrew words, we don't really know what they mean, but they're in our songs, we'd go to those words, you know. And John is like, that's all true, but let me just kind of back it up and kind of give you the main thing. God is, now this is a, okay, Either this is he's lying or he's mistaken or this is a really powerful idea that God in his essence is love. Okay, John, I just got a few questions. John, God is love. Did you see what happened to Jerusalem? Yeah. How many friends did you lose? I lost count. Okay, you know what happened to Peter? Yeah. And Paul? Yeah. We heard Matthew was burned at the stake. Yeah, I heard that too. And God is love? Yeah. How do you know that? Let me tell you how I know that. This is how God showed his love. This, see, if you're just reading the Bible on your own, you go too fast at this part. Among us, 
Do you know what this is right here? This is John's going, let me, let, let me take you back. I saw what Jesus did. This wasn't something I read about. It happened among us. There are a few of us in that right, Mary. There are a few of us who were there and we saw it. I will never doubt the love of God because of what I saw. This is how God showed, us his, showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son. Oh, I, I memorized a verse about that one as a child. For God, sh- I wrote that. Oh, that's right, John 316. Oh, same John, got it. Okay, so you know. Yeah, I know, I wrote that. We didn't have 316, it was just what happened. Oh, yeah. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This, same love, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Little uh, pause, little teaching here. Us, our, us, our, us, our, us, our. Do you know what that means? That means that every person you're ever eyeball to eyeball with in this world is someone that God loves and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for. Your mother-in-law, Seriously, she's an us in an hour. She's one of those. Your boss, the president of your homeowners association. <laughs> Serious. President of your fraternity. All the freshmen in the freshman class. Your math teacher. The people on this staff. The people that you pass every day. The people that cut you off in traffic. Store clerks. The person that delivers your mail. Your doctor. Everybody you talk on the phone with is an us or an hour. <laughs> and God sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. And see, for John, this isn't theory. This isn't like, oh, I read that in a book. He wrote the book. He said, no, no, I saw it happen. And all these years later, all these years later, all these years later, I am just as convinced as I've ever been that the guy that we call Jesus was the son of God who came to be the sacrifice for sin. So dear friends, since God, we also ought. Dear friends, since God, we also ought. This little Greek word ought is actually a financial term that infers or communicates indebtedness. There is a debt-debtor relationship in the gospel, he says, that you need to understand. There is a debt-debtor relationship between you and every single person you ever meet. There's a debt-debtor relationship between you and God. He said, let me expound upon it. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Meaning, since God so loved us, we owe it to others to love them. But more specifically, since God loved others, we owe it to God to love others. Since God loved me, I owe it to God to love you. And since God loved you, you owe it to God to love me. And every time you act unlovable and I'm tempted to respond in like kind, I remember, no, I'm not loving you because I ought to love you. I'm loving you because God chose to love me. That there's a sense in which I am so indebted to God. And I'm indebted to God in not such a way that if I don't pay back my debt, something bad happens to me. No, no, it's way better than that. I'm indebted to God because he's done something for me and he doesn't even want me to pay him back. And I'm so overwhelmed with the love of God. I'm so overwhelmed with what God has done on my behalf. And all he has said is, look, here's all I ask. You don't have to do anything for me. I'm God. 
I want you to love other people. And Andy, I want you and those people who say they follow me, I want you to love others in such a way that people go, wow, wow. Look how they love. I want you to love people in such a way that, they, that your whole community lives. I owe it to God. I owe it to God to love you. I, I want you to love people in such a way that no one will ever say about my followers again that they are quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and a deservedly infamous group. I want this to go away. I want this to be eradicated. I want this to be erased from the experience of humanity. And the only way for that to happen is for you to take seriously this new command I give you. Love one another. See, I don't, I'm just guessing at this point, so don't take this too seriously. I don't think that's what Anne quit. I mean, I don't, excuse me, I don't, I don't think that would have happened. I don't think Anne would have had to quit if we'd gotten just, not 10 commandments, just Jesus' new one. Right. There, there's a sense in which maybe we need to all quit Christianity because we don't even know what it is anyway. It's whatever you want it to be. And to once again become disciples. Because I don't think many people quit. Wow, they sure loved me well. Wow, they just accepted me unconditionally. Wow, they just, he just forgave me. Wow, she just pardoned me. Wow, they just don't hold it against me. Wow, they just heard about my past and it just seems to be like a non-issue. I don't think people are inclined to quit that. Can you imagine? If suddenly, again, like I said last week, just for a week, just for a day, just for a month. What if we had the year of no more Christianity, we're gonna be disciples just for a year, then we'll get back to our disputatious, quarrelsome, you know, hostile ways, you know. Can you imagine what would happen in a city, in a community, in a culture, in a family, in a neighborhood, in a world? I'll tell you what will happen because it's happened before. That's what we're gonna talk about for the next two weeks. You really don't wanna miss the next two weeks. Here's what happens. People would get around us and they would say this. I, I, I don't feel coerced. I don't feel coerced. I feel drawn. I, I, I feel drawn to the edge of who they are. I don't feel like somebody's gonna reach up and grab me and pull me in. And I don't feel like somebody's going to jump up and push me away. I, I, I don't feel coerced. I just feel drawn. And the other strange thing about being around these Jesus followers is this. Sometimes I do feel guilty. I feel guilty because I'm not that honest. I mean, I'm telling you, she messed up. And I mean, before I could even go down there to see her, she was in my office saying, I just got to let you know I messed up. I mean, he's, he's so honest. I mean, he came to me and showed me where he made a mistake and I would never would have caught it. And I'm like, what's up with you? Nobody does that. And I was thinking, you know what? Not only does nobody do that, I wouldn't have done that. I felt kind of guilty. You know, I, I talked to them about their relationship and man, the way they're doing their relationship, it's better than my relationship. I just, I do. Sometimes when I'm around these people, I feel kind of guilty, but I've never felt condemned. It's the oddest thing. It's like their standards. I mean, th their husbands and wives, they don't fight each other. It's like they're fighting together for their marriage. And I don't do that in my marriage. 
And I watched this, this 10th grade boy and the way, I mean, the way he treated my daughter, I, I, would, I didn't treat girls like that. When I was in the 10th grade, I'm like, what, what planet are you from? I mean, I hope she falls in love with you and marries you, but I'm just telling you, I, even as a grown man, I watched the way that 10th or 11th grade boy treated my daughter and the respect he showed for my wife, and I felt bad, but I didn't feel condemned. And I heard about how generous they are. I mean, people who have so little and they continue to give and I'm so glad they're giving. I'm so glad they're in my community. But honestly, I felt a little bit guilty. I'm not that generous, but I never felt like they condemned me. You see, that's how most of us came to faith, isn't it? We met some people like that. We met a group like that. We met a community like that. And we were drawn in. What if everybody who names the name of Jesus decided, I mean, Andy, I mean, this isn't rocket science. Don't go, Andy had such a great sermon. That was a great insight. I never heard that before. (laughs) It's been in there for 2,000 years. Our problem is we've settled for being Christians. Our problem is we settled for the brand Christianity. And we gave up something good. John would say this. You gave up your leverage in culture. You gave up your leverage in society. Oh, you talk about making a difference and you talk about changing the world, but you gave up your leverage when you opted for anything other than love. See, here's what I want you to think about this week. What would that look like? And men, don't freak out. This isn't passive. Come on. Remember, if you want to know what Jesus meant, look at what Jesus did. So let's, maybe some of us need to man up and be more like Jesus. Don't be afraid of that. What does that look like in the marketplace? What does that kind of honesty cost you? What does that kind of transparency mean? What does that look like in a marriage? I mean, there's some people here, you're, you're, today your marriage is hanging on by a thread. I mean, you haven't spoken to each other in a few days, maybe a few weeks. I mean, it's really, really bad, but you're both here or you're both watching. What would it look like to decide, you know what? I'm gonna love my wife like Christ loved me. Did you know that's actually a verse in the Bible? It's already in there. You know what? I'm gonna love my husband because of the way God loved me. Do you realize it's already there? Do you know what a difference that would make? Do you know if we don't get this right, it doesn't really matter what else we do? So let's just decide. You decide you're gonna love me because God loved you, and I'll decide I'm gonna love you because God loved me. Let's just do that. Let's just try that. Let's just meditate on that. Let's just focus on that. And it'll get weird, and it'll get awkward, and sometimes you won't know what to do. But if you're gonna struggle with something as a follower of Jesus, I think that's the thing we're supposed to be struggling over. And John, with the perspective we'll never have, would say to us today, that's your best opportunity for your family. That's your best opportunity at work. That's your best opportunity in your community. That's your best opportunity as citizens of a nation. Love one another. Let me pray for you. Father, it's simple to say, it's hard to know what to do. But then at the same time, we kind of know what to do. Some of us are afraid to do it because we're afraid we'll be taken advantage of, and we will. Some of us, we're afraid to do it because... We're afraid of what people will think about us. Father, I want to pray for single men. They would learn to love the way their heavenly father loved them as it relates to the way they treat women. 
Father, for husband and, and wives, that we would, we would love each other in such a way that it reflects the debt of gratitude that we owe our Heavenly Father. Father, I want to pray for every teenager here whose parents are not here, whose mom and or dad, they're just not church people, and they're trying to figure out how to be a Christian you know, follower of Jesus, 17-year-old or 14-year-old or 18-year-old with families who just don't value what they value. Just show them in their world. What does it mean? To love my mom and love my dad the way God loved me. And Father, I think it would change my world entirely if every day, every time I was eyeball to eyeball with anyone, I would recognize my heavenly Father loves them as much or more than you love me. And I pray that I would be better at being for them what you have already been for them. And that maybe we would be the generation that got this right. And you do something amazing with us and through us. And we, like John, would be the first to say, all the glory goes to you as we have learned to love. And I pray all of this, Father, in the matchless, matchless, are you kidding me, name of Jesus. Amen.